Well, welcome to another episode of TMX Presents, the podcast. My name is George Khalife, Vice President of U.S. Capital Formation. And with me today is Tamir Poleg, CEO at Real, listed on both TSX and NASDAQ under the ticker REAX. Real is the fastest growing publicly traded real estate tech brokerage. It operates in 44 U.S. states, D.C. and Canada. Real is on a mission to make agents' lives better, creating financial opportunities for agents through better commission splits, best-in-class technology, revenue sharing, and equity incentives. Founded in 2014, Real went public, then on the TSX Venture in June of 2020. It listed on NASDAQ just a year later, and then as of this year in 2022, graduated to the TSX. A really great growth story, and one that when Tamir talks about, the uplisting was such an important next step that helped increase global visibility, And just being able to operate on a platform that has a much larger investor base, also being grateful for the start they got on TSX Venture. And Tamir, I thought I'd start there. Usually I start with how the company got started. We're going to get to in a second, but curious, like what has this growth meant to you in such a seemingly and relatively short period of time? First of all, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here today. When you're starting a company, you're starting a journey that you don't really know how it's going to play out and you cannot really plan for it. And I think that, you know, for many years we were having the general struggles of of a startup, but then everything started exploding and we started growing like crazy. In 2021, we grew revenue by 635%. I think that at that point, I didn't really let myself enjoy it a lot because all of a sudden you have a new set of challenges, challenges of scale, of not letting the the company fall apart because of that hyper growth. But there were points where we felt extremely, extremely grateful, I would say, and excited, obviously, about everything. But I mean, when you're running a company, you're always concerned about what's next. You always have new goals, new things that you want to achieve. You're constantly unsatisfied with some things. So even though you're experiencing this hyper growth, which means that the market really accepts what you're offering and there's demand to, to what you're building, it doesn't stop there. You just keep raising the bar. No no doubt. I mean, that's sort of the story of being an entrepreneur, right? It's, it's always yeah. what's next. And you try to celebrate those small wins. I'm curious from your perspective as someone who's actually gone through it, you know, in the US, one of the analogies I always use to talk about exactly what Real has done is sort of going from college sports, like let's say NCAA to the professional sports, the NBA league, right? And going from TSX Venture, do you feel like uplisting, but starting on this junior exchange, the venture exchange gave you that comfort, that credibility that, hey, we've executed, we've built credibility, and now we're ready for both TSX and NASDAQ? I think that listing on the venture exchange was absolutely the right decision for us. Back then, when we decided to list, we were making around $10 million in annual revenue, so very small company. And we knew that we belong in the publicly traded space, and we wanted to create an equity program for our agents to to just reward them and incentivize them to help us grow the company. So we knew that we wanted to become publicly traded. And the venture exchange was by far the best alternative that we had. So for us, we knew that, okay, we're going to list on on the venture exchange. We're going to learn how to operate as a publicly traded company. We're going to mature. And then at some point, we will probably uplist to TSX and potentially to, to other exchanges in the US. I think that everything happened very quickly for us. 
listing on Nasdaq just a year after listing on, on the venture exchange was kind of uh, somewhat of a surprise to everybody. But I think that the venture exchange allows you a very smooth transition from a private company to a publicly traded company without all of the burden of operating a publicly traded company, even though you are operating a publicly traded company, but there's a you know, costs associated to that, a certain amount of resources that you, the management team, you as the CEO have to invest in, in just being publicly traded. I think that the venture exchange is, is a very smooth transition in that aspect. And when did you know when the right time was to start looking at NASDAQ, TSX? Like, obviously, we have certain requirements to make that happen. But as a CEO, were you conscious of hitting certain milestones before, you know, seriously considering that path forward? I think that once we felt that there's tremendous momentum behind the business and the growth is there and we can count on it, we felt very comfortable at exploring the upgrading to the TSX and, and listing on NASDAQ. So at that point, market cap started growing significantly. Our revenue, as I said, we listed on the Venture Exchange in June of 2020. And in 2021, we grew revenue by 635%. So at some point in the middle of 2021, we realized that revenue is picking up dramatically. And at that point, we said, okay, we probably belong in a different place. Even though we thought it's going to take a couple of years, it only took one year. But I think it was the combination of looking at the revenue numbers and feeling very comfortable with the sustainability of the growth. Hmm. One more before we sort of get to the how you built it and how you got here, because I'm always equally interested in, in that portion. But you're wearing so many hats. You're obviously leading a fantastic team. You're trying to grow real, but you're still this at heart. Like your DNA is this like gritty entrepreneur and, and, and founder, right? But at the same time, you're dealing with this behemoth of being public and having to deal with all the requirements. How is that learning process like for you? Is it learn as you go? Is it the team around you, the advisory group? No one is born a CEO of a publicly <laughs> traded company. I think that when you're considering <laughs> taking that step, you kind of have to sit with yourself and say, okay, I'm going now into an uncharted territory and there's a lot that I need to learn. So you're just starting to learn about things. You're starting to have conversations with other people who, who did the same journey. And you also have to commit to constantly leveling up because it requires you to level up constantly, especially when you're growing so rapidly. It means that there are certain things and measures that you have to put in place. You have to adhere to certain regulations as well. You cannot completely operate the way that you operated as a, as a small privately held startup. But on the other hand, I would say that you know, sometimes you look at publicly traded companies, you're thinking, hey, this is so flashy and it's so amazing and everything seems to be working so well and they're so lucky. And I often talk to early stage startups and entrepreneurs and I'm just telling them, you know, there's no difference between us. The only difference is that I probably started a few years earlier, but in terms of the challenges that I'm facing, it's probably the same challenges that you're facing. Like, it's not like when you're becoming publicly traded, then all of a sudden everything runs smoothly and you don't have to put in the effort. It's probably the opposite. Like all of a sudden you have so many other stakeholders, you have a huge product that's called the share price that you have to manage. You have to talk to analysts, you have to talk to the market. It just adds more and more and more complexity and more and more work for you as, as a CEO. So I think that personally, it is an exciting journey but it requires you to constantly improve and push yourself to the next limit. 
Right, right. It's like that that self check every morning. Like, yeah, sure, things are great, but let's keep pushing the pace. Yes. Speaking of you know early stage startup founders that you're now talking to, let's go back eight years ago, man. Yeah, this is 2014. I'm taking you back on a roller coaster, probably at this point. Yes. You're starting the real. What was the genesis of of actually starting this company? What made you interested in trying to disrupt the real estate market? It probably came from my own personal background. So we actually started real three co-founders. I started as a construction worker in my early 20s when I completed my military service in Israel. I went to work in construction for two and a half years. And I think that this is where the real estate virus went into my veins. And then I got a degree in economics. And then I joined a startup in a sales position in the year 2000, just before the the dot-com bubble burst. So I spent about five years with two different startups slash tech companies uh, doing sales and business development in Europe. And then I made a complete career change. And in 2006, I opened my own real estate company in Houston, Texas, just focusing on multifamily investments and construction as well. So when I sold my previous business in 2013, I kind of paused and I found myself with a combination of real estate background and technology background. And I knew that I wanted to stay in real estate because for me, that's the most exciting industry in the world. Just the fact that, you know, we're helping families and individuals find a place in the world and put a roof over their heads and just, you know, find a place to to grow their families in. And at the same time, there's so much money flowing around real estate. So that was exciting for me. I knew that I wanted to do something in real estate. And I was just amazed by the fact that real estate was so slow moving and pushing back on innovation. And unlike any other industry, real estate has not evolved. And at that point, I said, okay, there is a tremendous opportunity here. That's the largest single asset class in the world. How can we do something here? And as I looked at certain verticals, one day I looked at the brokerage industry because in my past company, I was working with hundreds of real estate agents and I clearly understood the value that agents bring into the transaction. So I am a firm believer that agents are here to stay. And as long as it's humans that are buying homes, they should be served by other humans that are experts in real estate that will guide them through that highly complicated, very emotional transaction. And when I looked at, at the brokerage industry back then, I realized that agents were underserved, overpaying, and that it's a huge industry that's dominated by practically dinosaurs, you know, companies that have been around for many, many decades and were failing at, at evolving. And for me, that was an opportunity. So at that point, I partnered up with my co-founders and we started building real out of a true and somewhat naive mission of always finding ways to make agents' lives better. That's awesome to hear. And when you faced with this, I would say, opportunity and challenge ahead of you in the largest asset class, how do you figure out where to focus first? Because that's always the, the thing I'm most interested in, right? You have so many streams where you can tackle. How do you narrow down that first piece to actually start tackling? I think that generally, when you're building a company, you have to decide who your customer is. And very early on, we decided that our customer is the real estate agent. It's not the home buyer, it's not the seller, it's not the lender. We are going to dedicate our lives to the real estate agents. And at that point, if you become somewhat even maniacal in the fact that every decision that's being made in the company is being made through the lens of, is this good for the agent or is this good 
for somebody else? Or is this not good for the agent? I think that very early on, we adopted this philosophy of always making decisions based on whether it's good or not for the agents. Even if it's not good for the company, eventually long-term, when we're thinking long-term, if it's good for the agent, it is going to become good for the company. So where do we start? By asking ourselves, what are our clients missing? What's not working well for them? Let's understand exactly what they go through every day. Let's dive extremely deep into their hearts and minds. Really understand how they think, really understand how they feel, how they feel every day, how they feel at the end of of the week, how they feel when they get some sort of an objection from a client, and let's try to improve everything. And then you come up with a long list of things that you think you can do to improve their work and their lives, and then you have to prioritize. So that's kind of the thought process at the beginning. Obviously, you make a lot of mistakes, Mm. uh, and we've made a lot of mistakes, but I think that what kept us successful, I would say, was that focus on the agents and what's best for them. 100%. It seems like that differentiation of real is, at the heart, is fully understanding what the journey is for the actual broker. And on top of that is creating this incentivized economic model that provides a fair playing ground for everyone, where it's not like they're just making one stream of, of money through, let's say, just a flat commission, or which is traditionally what it, what it always was, right? Yeah, it's, it's a part of the overall understanding of the agent's work and the agent's lives, because at the end of the day, the overwhelming majority of agents are independent contractors. They have no job security. They have to provide for their families. And if they do not perform, then, you know, tough life. I mean, you're not going to make any money. So we also felt that there should be a company that takes care of the agent's futures. So how can we create more financial opportunities for agents aside from closing transactions, aside from serving their clients? How can we help them, you know, build assets for themselves? Because there's a joke that says, when is a real estate agent retiring? When they're dead. Because when you're a real estate agent, you just continue to work because you have to. But how can we change that? How can we make them partners in the company they help build? How can we allocate equity for them in this company that we build together with them? How can we create additional financial opportunities for them through Revenue Share, which is a program that offers them residual income if they attract their friends to the company? So all of those things are starting at the very basic understanding of what do agents need and how can we help them? Was part of that sort of research that you were doing in the beginning, did you then uncover that technology was also a big part that was missing, not just in the industry, but really for brokers in terms of the tools that they had at, the, at their hands? And did that then lead to, all right, let's look at how Real can make that much more efficient? A hundred percent. And the challenge, especially in real estate, is that people did not know what they were missing because they were used to doing things in a certain way, and that's how they operated. They didn't know how an alternative would look like. There were some companies trying to sell them on tools. Those tools were working as standalone. They were not integrated. They ended up paying a lot of money for those tools. The ROI was kind of very vague in many cases. So I think that the challenge for us was to try and and understand without the agents being able to articulate to us what is it exactly that agents need in terms of technology? Because agents are, I mean, they're not technologists. They're not 
mm. writing code and they're not product people. So you actually need to talk to them and watch them and process a lot of their transactions in order to understand what is it exactly that they need. Because sometimes they will tell you, hey, we need a great CRM. But essentially what they're trying to say is that we're looking for a way to automate a certain process which will result in us saving two hours on every transaction. And it doesn't necessarily have to do with the CRM that they have in mind. I mean, a lot of what you're talking about too is change management, right? Like you're talking to someone who, and maybe in part, I don't know if you realize this within real estate, but I feel like in part it's because frankly, okay, it's it's been working. It's not really effective, but it was working. And also the lack of transparency means that a smaller collective of groups have more oversight as to what actually is happening versus when you bring in technology, you flatten that power, right? You're democratizing what that looks like. I'm sure you got a lot of resistance up front because of that. Yes, I mean, we're humans and we hate change. Especially when it comes to your income, you do not want to change anything because you're afraid it's going to hurt your income. So 100% there's a change management aspect to the business. I think that nowadays it's much easier. At the beginning, when we were talking about it, there was a lot of pushback. I think that now people are starting to understand that unless you use technology in your business, you're probably going to, to stay behind. There was a phase, by the way, I would say around 2016, 2017, that agents were joining us because we were the technology alternative, but they didn't know anything about technology. But they did know and they did feel that unless they use technology, they will be thrown out of the industry. They will stay back behind the curve. So... Many agents just told us, hey, we're joining you because you're going to offer me technology. I know nothing about technology. I don't know what you're going to offer me, but I can check the box and say that, okay, I, I've joined Real. I got it covered. I'm not going to stay behind the curve. That was kind of an interesting phase. I think that nowadays it's very different. People understand exactly what technology can offer them. They can explain much better what they expect or what they need and what what's missing and how that can be fixed. So today we are heavily relying on our agents for for the development of our, of our product. I would say that probably 90% of everything that we built is based on feedback and learning from our agents. I feel like I know the number, but I'd rather you say it. How many agents right now are on, on Reels platform? The last number that we announced publicly was over 7,300. And obviously we are growing, but wow. as a publicly traded company, you have to stick to, to what you previously announced. But yeah, yeah, of course. We're growing agent count by last quarter is, was 126% year over year. So you, you can realize that as we're speaking, even in those 45 minutes, we're adding more agents. <laughs> well, it's, it's funny. Uh, this is why I didn't say the number before, because I'm like, I'm pretty sure it's, it's grown significantly since then. I remember the number 4,000, if that puts a smile on your face. <laughs> Which now yeah. is probably a while ago. That's a lot. And curious, like, what have you learned since? So you've had all these assumptions. You've obviously proven the business model. What has changed about Real since you've onboarded more than 7,000 agents? I mean, compared to when we started, a lot has changed. I think that the product focus has changed. I think that we understand much better the overall market that we operate in, we understand what others are doing. We understand where the, the industry is going. I think that we also 
demonstrated to ourselves primarily that when you're starting a company, you have big dreams. And you can say things like, we are going to become the largest brokerage in the world or in America within five years or within 10 years, but it's on paper. At some point, you have to demonstrate and prove that what you're saying, you can actually deliver. So I think that we proved to ourselves and to the market that we actually deliver. And that's a big, a big thing. I think it gives you a lot of confidence. I think that on the product side, there are so many companies that built great products for real estate agents, but they just failed. They failed because various reasons, or some of our peers are just building technology that ends up being used by 10% of the agents in, in the brokerage or 20%. We have 100% usage of our technology by our agents. So it's 100%. You cannot be an agent at Rio without using the technology. So I think that that was also a very important lesson for us. Another important lesson was the ability to attract amazing talent. We're a team of 105 employees right now, and each and every one of them is just a superstar. The ability to gather people and rally people around a cause or a vision, it's pretty amazing because each and every one of, of those 105 employees, including myself, we wake up in the morning with a burning passion and desire to serve our agents. So I think that we learned how to identify those superstars and kind of attract them and make them a part of the family. And that's something that's so critical, right? It's kind of the third piece of this story is how phenomenal the culture is, right? And just having spoken to your team as we're getting ready for recording this, this episode, something that kept being brought up is the culture, right? And the focus on making agents' lives better, focusing on the experience, being transparent. Did you have maybe a methodology of how you wanted the culture to be set up as you were building real, or was it formed as the company was growing? It's a great question because I think that in our case, culture just happened. Culture is very often just a reflection of the individuals that are building the company together. And when I talk about the individuals, I'm talking about us, the team, and I'm talking about the agents that have joined us, and I'm talking about the investors who invested in the company. So we didn't have any type of culture in mind. We just knew that we want to work hard and be kind. That's one of our core values. And kindness is, is a very unusual thing in the business world because companies typically do not talk about kindness. We started talking about kindness years ago. I think that now people are starting to realize that kindness is, is in fact important. But I think that early on, culture was built by the founding team and the first employees that joined the company and some of our investors and some of my investors were just instrumental with their advice and guidance. And I think that our culture is very much based on them personally, especially one, one individual. But in our case, it's about the people. How would you describe, like if you had maybe three words, and I know this, sometimes this is very difficult, so I won't hold you to it, but if there were three words to describe culture at Real for someone who, let's say, wants to join, how would you describe it? I would say that Real, again, as I said, is a place for people who want to work hard and be kind to each other, a very collaborative environment, and a place where there's a lot of passion for succeeding in real estate. That's how I would summarize it. And I think this actually connects really nicely to when I was talking to your team, they said, you have to ask Tamir about this story, which is about the line in the room. Uh, and so 
They, they didn't yeah. elaborate. That, that was a surprise, by the way. So surprise. <laughs> yeah. I'd love for you to share that story and, and how it weaves into both your personal and your professional mindset. Sure. Yeah, that's a surprise. Um, <laughs> so we operate in a highly competitive environment and real estate is very often cutthroat industry and, and very competitive. Eat what you kill. Yeah, exactly. And in our case, we were never allowed. We never bashed any other company. We never talked negatively. I mean, when I'm talking to agents that are considering to join us and they tell me, hey, I'm with company A, immediately I tell them, you know, you're with a great company. Let's start with that. So I would never say anything negative about that. And that's very unusual in our industry because everybody's competing over the, the same piece of the pie. And a few years ago, I had a conversation with a very successful agent. She is still with a different brokerage, a brokerage that's considered you know, one of our closest competitors, even though I do not believe that in competition. I believe that there are probably our closest comparable. But then she told me something which kind of stuck with me. And she said, I love what you're building at Real, and it seems like Real is the silent lion in the corner of the room. And at the beginning, I, I didn't fully understand what she was trying to say, and, and I thought about it that night, and I really liked it because if you're a lion, you don't have to stand in the middle of the room and scream, hey, I'm a lion, please notice me. If you're a lion, you have the confidence of sitting in, in the corner doing mm -hmm. your own thing, and everybody else in that room knows that there is a lion in the room. There's a king, there's a, a powerful entity or animal in the room. I think that she was spot on. This is exactly what real is. We are a powerful company, minding our own thing, sitting at the corner and not having to shout. And that's probably why some people are attracted to us because they have the same type of mentality. Yeah, I love that. And I think the way I internalize that too is actually being authentic you know, being your authentic self versus trying to be someone who you're not, number one. Number two, what stands out to me is, you know that saying, a rising tide lifts all ships? Yes. And to that is, you can build a very large building without having to tear other people's buildings down. Real estate is a very large industry. There is room for a lot of successful companies. And we acknowledge it. I hope that others acknowledge it as well. But the fact that we are successful or somebody else is successful doesn't mean that a different company or another company cannot become successful. Mm -hmm. I want to go back quickly to, because now we talked about the story, a little bit about public markets initially, but I think what stands out to me a lot is your ability to use public markets to also incentivize brokers in your, in your network to say that we're not just offering you technology for you to use for your careers and your profession and your roles in real estate, but the more that you perform, the more successful you'll be as a result of you participating in what real is doing both publicly and, and operationally. Was that sort of a goal from the onset when you were looking to go public? Like, was that a big purpose? That's probably the only reason why we went public. In the brokerage <laughs> world, very often it's us versus them. So it's the brokerage on one hand and the agents on one hand, and there's no true alignment of interest. And back in 2017, I realized that there are three parties that build this amazing company that we're building. It's the investors, it's the team and the agents. But if and when the company becomes massively successful, it's just going to be the, the investors and the team that are going to benefit from that and the agents will be left out. So in 2017, we actually started granting stock options to our agents. Two years later, we realized that most agents didn't fully 
understand the potential of owning stock options in a small startup. And at that point, I said, okay, it doesn't make sense to be public right now. We're a tiny company, but we're still going to do it because we want to create an equity program for our agents as a publicly traded company, because if we're doing it as a publicly traded company, then the agents will, at any given point in time, understand the value of the equity that they're being granted. And they will be able to liquidate that as well. This is why we went public. It's just creating 100% alignment of interest between the company and, and the agents. That was the last missing piece. Hmm. It's nice to hear because I don't think it's often thought about as much. You have your typical reasons, right? Like, of course, there's the capital there's the acquisition currency that you can use to grow inorganically. There's the visibility, the credibility, all that helps, obviously. And companies have different reasons and they might prioritize those differently. But I also love to hear when it actually aligns with the sort of core purpose of the company and then looping in that ecosystem to benefit from the company performing as a result of it being public as well. Yes. You don't hear that as much as what I'm saying. This is why I was very interested. It's like the perfect flywheel that was created here. Yeah, yeah, like value creation. The last one I have for you, Tamir, and really appreciate your time being with us, because I could talk to you for, it seems like hours, is just, I'm curious, looking back, you've really had a really cool journey, and the engines are just really kicking into gear now. But as someone who has been public for quite a while now, you know, three years in public markets are probably like 30 years elsewhere. What would you give in terms of advice to someone looking to be where you were at in 2020, embarking on this public markets journey? They need to, first of all, make the decision from the right place. Like, forget about the ego or your desire to say that, hey, I'm running a publicly traded company. Like, first of all, try to determine whether this is the right thing for the business. And you have to, mm. to be 100% sure about it. Second, you have to understand what it actually means the day after. Because, you know, it's, it's a long process to become publicly traded and you have all of this anticipation and, and it's great and you might be ringing the bell and everything is, is happy. But then you wake up the, the morning after and, okay, now I have to run a publicly traded company. What does it mean? What kind of cost does it add? What does it require from me as a CEO? So you have to understand what it means. And I would say that people should also understand the downside. Like if your company is not ready, if your story is not big enough, if it's not the right time in the company's life cycle, then this can do more damage than good. So you have to understand exactly whether this is the right time for you or not. And then last thing I would say is don't try to cut corners. If you cut corners, you get punished. In life in general, but as a publicly traded company, I think that's even more severe. Try to to always do the right thing. Well, can't end a podcast on a better note. I love it. So to summarize, you make sure it's coming from the right place. So really have those reasons set in stone. See past the honeymoon phase is what I wrote down. Yes. Because there's going to be different realities to it. Three is understand the downside. And then four is don't try to cut corners. That's an amazing summary. Yeah. Well, Tamir, thank you very much. Really appreciate you being on the podcast. I also want to thank your team. They've been outstanding throughout this process just to help us get organized. For those interested, either joining Real as an agent, visit joinreal.com. And if you want to check out the other side of the website for consumers, it's onereal.com. This is TMX Presents the podcast. Tamir, thanks again. George, 
Thanks for having me and thank you everyone for listening and I would like to thank my team for all of the efforts. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to TMX Presents, the podcast. And thank you to Tamir, as well as the team at Real for sharing the story, the growth, and the journey of going public. For more information, visit us.tsx.com. And for more insights from capital markets leaders, visit tmx.com forward slash POV.